we are continuing our teaching series in Galatians called No Other Gospel. We should have called it Justification by Faith, right? Because that's like the entirety of the book. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at part one of Paul's defense of justification by faith from Scripture. And we focused on chapter 3, verses 6 through 18, and he answered three important questions for us. Firstly, are we sons of Abraham by the law or faith? Well, Abraham believed, therefore sonship comes through faith. We are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith, not by works of the law. Uh, secondly, he answered, are we redeemed by the law or Christ? We are redeemed by Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We're not redeemed by our works of the law. We're redeemed by faith in Christ or by Christ alone. And then thirdly, is our inheritance earned? Or, I mean, do we, is this something that we earn through our, our good deeds? Or is it the result of God's promise? It is the result of God's promise, the promise he made to Abraham. It's a great, a great text. We had a great time together. In the next section, Paul continues his defense of justification by faith by describing why the law was given and what it actually does. He basically describes its purpose. And I'd like for you guys to, to take your Bibles and turn over to Galatians 3. We're going to be looking at 19 through 29 today. We're going to wrap up chapter 3, basically. I was very tempted to go through chapter 4, verse 6, but I already preach long sermons, and God is giving you mercy today. <laughs> we are going to look at, at three more things today. I'm trying to keep this series as practical as possible. It's not the easiest thing in the world for me to do because I'm having a hard time understanding some of Paul's phrases and illustrations, but I want to keep things as practical and as simple as possible. So today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the purpose of the law. We're going to look at the power of the law. And we'll look at the perfection of the law. Those are the three things that Paul unpacks for us in this next text. I'm going to pray for God's help before we get to work. Lord, I pray that you help us now to understand your word, Lord. Um, we need the Holy Spirit to give us comprehension at a spiritual level so that the word is planted deep in us and it's transformative. It sanctifies and changes us. Father, we don't need to hear a lecture this morning. We don't need to hear data or information or just basically one more argument in defense of justification by faith. We need to hear you, the living God, speak to us, speak right to us and to our hearts and transform us. And Lord, uh, we just humble ourselves now as we prepare to, to listen uh, to your scripture, to the truth, and help us to understand the purpose of the law and a greater effect here. And most of all, help us to understand what justification by faith means. So we just commit this time to you and ask for your help. Lord, you're not obligated to help any of us. But Lord, you are gracious and kind, and you will help those who humble themselves. In this very moment, I pray that you humble me and that you speak through me. We commit this time to you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. We pick up where we left off last Sunday, right? Number one. 
the purpose of the law. We see this described in verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. This is what Paul says next. He says, why then the law? I mean, he's basically just completely dismantled uh, the, the Judaizers' argument that you need the law for justification. He's completely decimated their, their entire position leading up to verse 19. And, and, and now he's, it's like he's saying, well, does the law have any kind of purpose at all for us? Or does it, does it mean anything? I mean, I've destroyed your argument, but does it serve any sort of function? This is what he's saying here. Why then the law? I mean, is it necessary? Do we need it? What is its purpose? And then listen to what he says. He says, it was added because of transgressions. Transgressions is another word for sin. And he says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, he's speaking of Abraham, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. And he says, but God is one. Stop there. Paul begins this next phase of polemic or argument by asking and answering a question that pertains to the law. Why then the law? Why then? Why does it exist? What is it for? And I think that his answer from that moment forward in 19b all the way through, really all the way down through the rest of the text, I think his answer must have come as a surprise to the Galatians and especially to the Judaizers, those who were teaching falsely about the purpose of the law. I'm, I'm sure that this, this answer confounded them all. And he says very plainly that the law was added because of transgressions, because of sin. That's why the law exists. That's why God gave Moses the law. The law was given because of sin, because of transgression. If you have no sin, there's no need for law. But law has to be in place when you have sin. Because sin runs crazy and law tries to keep it within a perimeter. So it was added because of transgressions. What is Paul really saying here? Well, there's multiple possibilities. One is that the law was added to deal with bad behavior, either through its system of sacrifices or through its penalties, because we know God's law has many, many penalties. Because the law has consequences, it has some ability to control sin, to control transgressions. We, I think we see this even in our own nation. We have speed limits. We have laws in place that prohibit sinners from going further with their sin. And so some suggest that that's why the law is in place. It's to curb sin. It's to slow it down. It's to stop it from spreading in addition to, to showing the difference between right and wrong, which is what the law does, it shows how wrongdoers ought to be punished. And the fear of that punishment helps to restrain evil, right? It does. People don't typically obey the laws because they're good-natured and want to. They're afraid of the consequences, right? How often have you seen on TV or read about someone who was very upset about you know, getting nailed for committing a robbery or something else. They're upset not because they did the robbery, they're upset because they got caught and now they're facing 20 years. And the law serves, God's law serves in this capacity that it, 
that it has this ability to deter and to restrain sinners from getting crazy. It does have a, a deterrent effect within human society. The power of the law and government helps restrain evil, no doubt. So when Paul said the law was added because of transgressions, perhaps he meant that God gave it to help people avoid sin. That's the position of some commentators. I'm not sure I agree here. I think the law serves that purpose, but I don't think that's what Paul is after. He said in another place that the law has a way of making people want to break it. <laughs> he explained this effect to the Romans. He says, if it had not been for the law, he wrote, I would not have known sin, Romans 7, 7. And as soon as Paul found out what sin was, he wanted to try it. The law came in to increase the trespass, he says, Romans 5.20. Sometimes the law serves as a stimulus to sin. It does. Do we not see this as we've raised our children? We tell them not to do something, and then they are even more tempted to do it just to defy us, right? And if you did that in my house, you got whooped. The law has this ability, and, and I don't think it's the law intentionally doing it, I just think it's the sinner's response to the law. If you've read anything from Augustine, if you read confessions from him, which is a, a stellar work, it's really just one long confession of his sin and, and God's grace. When he was a child, uh, he, he, he took note of this phenomenon. Uh, his neighbor had a, a, a tree in, in his yard, and it was just full of all this delicious ripened fruit. And he wanted to pick some of that fruit, but he knew stealing was against God's law. He tells a story, and I'm sitting there wondering, why didn't you just go over there and talk to your neighbor and ask for permission? He never mentions that. But he's sitting like on the other side of the fence, looking through the fence, and he's seeing this tree with all this low-hanging, ripened fruit, and he's just salivating, and he wants it so badly. But he knows that stealing is wrong. It's against God's law. As he's staring at the fruit through the fence and, and pondering the commandment that was taught to him by his mother, he was overwhelmed by a desire to disobey and take the forbidden fruit. He felt this sense of, I want to teach God a lesson for trying to restrict me from doing what I want to do. And then what does he do? He hops the fence, takes the fruit, and runs for Sonora. It's what he did, and, and in that case, you have a scenario where the law is known, and it sort of tempts for that person to go where they ought not go and do what they ought not do. And, and we don't even bat an eye at somebody taking fruit off a neighbor's tree, but that's actually stealing, believe it or not. I had people stealing from me all the time when I lived on Miller. We had a, an orange tree out in the front yard, and I'd look out there, and they'd be pulling fruit from it, you know, and they, it just not a care in the world. I was like, it'll keep you from getting scurvy. Yeah, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> so rather than preventing transgression, the law actually provokes people to sin in a way. By doing so, it, it doesn't make things better. It actually makes a bad situation even worse. Either way... God did not give the law to reveal the path to justification. 
he, or for any other purpose, really, he, he gave it to disclose the evil power of sin. That's why the law exists. It was given because of transgressions, and it articulates and lays out what transgressions are and what the penalties are for committing those transgressions. I like what Luther wrote. I think I put it in your bulletin. The true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and well-deserved wrath of God. That's essentially what, what Paul is saying here. MacArthur backs it up with some more good commentary. He says, the law was added to show the depth of man's transgressions against God. Its impossible demands are meant to compel men to recognize their violation of God's standards and to seek His grace through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son. And Paul also says that the law reveals sin, right? It was given because of transgressions, and yet it reveals transgressions and sin only for a certain period of time, he says there in the text. It is a, a sort of parenthesis between the promise given to Abraham and the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham in Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. So the law kind of fills in a gap from basically, and we know it was given 430 years after Abraham, but it kind of serves between Abraham and the coming of Christ. It has a, a time period where it is effective. In one sense, God's law is eternal. You know, God has a perfect moral standard for His people. That's what the law reflects. The standard was initially made known to, to Adam to some degree, not to the Mosaic level, but it was made known to him to some degree. He was taught sacrifices and what sin is and these things. And, and, and so it begins sort of with Abraham and gets progressively uh, more intricate and detailed in Moses. But the point is, is that it, it has a starting point, and it kind of continues on into eternity. Why? Because it is based on the character of God. There is a, another sense, however, in which God's law is temporary. Right? There's the paradox. It's permanent and eternal, and yet it is, in a sense, temporary. It's a true paradox. The specific administration of the law given to Moses with all its ceremonies, curses, and sacrifices had its limits. As far as the history of salvation is concerned, its usefulness as a preparation for the gospel was only temporary. It was in force only, as Paul says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. He says this in verse 19. So it's got an eternal quality to it because it's based on the character of God, and yet it has a temporary quality on it because it really fills in the gap between Abraham and the coming of Christ, the promised offspring of Abraham. Think of the law like this. When I say law, I mean the Ten Commandments and everything else pertaining to the law, but think of the law like this. It was added by God to expose, to restrain, and to even increase sin in a sense, because that's what happens when wicked sinners get their hands on it, 
until God fulfilled his promise through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. When Jesus fulfills the promise given to Abraham by arriving and coming and by calling sinners to himself through faith, the law becomes superfluous. It becomes unnecessary in a sense because the gospel has done its work and those sinners are no longer under the law, no longer under, under condemnation. Christ became the curse of the law for those who believe in him. So the law is superfluous to them in a sense. It, it, it's applicable, but not really. What happens to those who are in Christ? The law is no longer their guide, or as Paul says in a, a moment here, their guardian. The Holy Spirit takes the place of the law. The law is not our tutor any longer. The Holy Spirit becomes our helper. And he guides us into all truth and into all righteousness and these sorts of things. So the law has a place, and it still continues to have a place, but that changes in the lives of God's people. It doesn't have the same place or prominence. Think of it like this. You have the law in place, and then when the Spirit comes and takes up residency in that sinner, and that sinner becomes a believer, the Spirit takes over where the law leaves off. He, in a sense, replaces the law. He becomes our guide, our helper. It is the, as I said, it is the presence of sin that necessitates the need for the law, right? The presence of sin necessitates the need for laws. We see this in God's Word. We see this in our culture. We have laws in place to restrain sin. Now think about it like this. If Christ has dealt with our sins decisively and permanently on the cross, why then would we need the law? It's a perfectly legitimate, logical question to ask. Some of you are probably thinking, oh no, he's become an antinomian. No? The Bible says this. The Bible says that God has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Psalm, Psalm 103, verse 12. That's what the Bible says. For those who are in Christ by grace through faith, your sins have been taken away. You cannot find them. They've been destroyed in Christ. If the law was given because of transgressions and you're no longer in transgression, you're in Christ, you're no longer in sin, you're in Christ, then what use does the law have for us? Think of it like that. Right? The law does not, therefore, apply to Christians in the same way that it applies to those who are outside of the law, unbelievers, or outside of Christ, unbelievers. They're still under the law. And for the Christian, any attempt by us to return to the law for justification is, is tantamount to trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified, and outraging the Spirit of grace. Hebrews 10.29, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. You were under the law. Christ took you out from under it. Why on earth would you go back? Why would you put yourself back in the cell block in the cell that Jesus busted you out of. And he talks about that more in a moment. 
When we, when we say, well, well, I'm going to be okay with God based on the fact that I believe in Christ and based on what I do, we are, in a sense, spitting on the cross, spitting in the face of the Savior who was spat on while he was on the cross by his enemies. We are spitting on the cross, spitting in his face, spitting in the face of the one who said in his dying breath, it is finished. John 19, 30. The purpose of the law is to expose our sinfulness and to point us to the one who dealt with our sin. Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. The law is a mirror. When you hold it up, it shouts to you, you have broken every, every ordinance of mine. You are a sinner and you need the one who dealt with sin. That's the purpose the law serves today. But it doesn't serve that purpose in, in my life, per se, because Christ has dealt with my sin. I don't have to look to the law to know I'm a sinner. All I have to do is sin, and the Holy Spirit says, you're a sinner. I'm convicted. I have the law in me, in a sense. My conscience has been made new. I have, I have God's Word planted in my heart. The Spirit guides me and leads me. He lets me know when I've sinned, and He's good at it. He's a pro. We don't have to hold up the commandments to know that. The purpose of the law is to expose sin and to point the sinner to the one who dealt with sin once and for all, Jesus Christ. And once we are in Christ by grace through faith, the purpose of the law is in a sense complete for us and we no longer need it, not in the same way. We move from the law to grace and we live by grace the rest of our lives until grace takes us home. The law has never delivered a single person to heaven, and it never will. It only puts people in hell. Grace takes us home. And I want you to notice the mysterious, bizarre detail Paul includes in 19b and verse 20. He says the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What a bizarre, interesting statement that almost seems out of place, but it's not. This is another shotgun blast against the Judaizers. Angels are not specifically mentioned in Exodus 19 where God gave the law to Moses in a thick cloud with thunder and lightning, fire and smoke, earthquakes and trumpets. If you've ever read the text, it's pretty extraordinary. Yet Moses mentioned the angel shortly before he died. As he blessed God's people, he reflected on how the law was given to him on that amazing day or during that amazing week back in Exodus 19. He says this. This is, this is his experience and what he watched play out and what, what, he, what he witnessed as he was given the law. He says, The Lord came down from Mount Sinai and dawned over them from Mount Seir, he shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones, those are angels, from the south, from his mountain slopes. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. There were angels present when Moses received the law. When he was given the law, there were myriads of angels there, holy ones. And according to the Apostle Paul here, they were the ones who actually gave the law to Moses. Wow. They 
did this for God. And it makes total and absolute sense because what are angels? God's messengers, are they not? The angel Gabriel delivered several messages for God. This is a prime example of how the angelic beings are messengers for God. He, Gabriel is a very, very well-known angel. You have Michael, too, who's an archangel. But with Gabriel, he delivered a lot of messages. He, he's the one that appeared before Daniel, Daniel 9.21, and gave him a message. He appeared to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and, and spoke to him, Luke 1.19. And he is the one who appeared to Mary, right? Told her that she was going to have a son, the Savior's son. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Angels are messengers. Angels, uh, and I think the presence of God was absolutely there with Moses, but it's angels who gave the law. And now you have to say to yourself, why, Paul? Why mention this? What does it matter? What, what, how is this pertinent? How is this relevant? He did it to illustrate the superiority of, of the promise made to Abraham over the law given to Moses. This is a, what he was doing in, in verse 18 and below. He's been showing how the law is, is uh, or how the, the promise made to Abraham is superior over the law given to Moses. When God made, and here's the point, when God made the promise to Abraham, he did it between him and Abraham. There was no intermediary. There was no angel there to communicate. God appeared in some way, shape, and form and spoke directly to Abraham when he gave him the promise. It was between him and Abraham. There were no angels, no messengers. Direct revelation, direct appearance, direct revelation between God and Abraham. But when God gave the law to Moses... He had angels do that for him. They acted as an intermediary between God and Moses. God's one-on-one -on -one interaction with Abraham shows just how important the covenant promise that he made to Abraham is. It was so important that God communicate, communicated it directly to Abraham, from him to Abraham. That covenant promise that he made to Abraham was of the highest importance. Why? Because it deals with justification by faith. It deals with the salvation of Gentiles who will be saved apart from the law. And yet the angel's interaction with Moses illustrates a lower level of importance. These angels, not God himself, these angels communicated the law which is Temporary. It serves a purpose between Abraham and the coming of Christ. You can see the superiority of the promise made, and you can see the inferiority of the law. One is eternal. It's an eternal covenant promise. The other one is temporary. It serves a purpose between two bookends, Abraham and the coming of Christ. After that, it's done for Christians, not for unbelievers. It's done for Christians. In my humble opinion here, Paul was doing everything he could to destroy the Judaizers obsession with the law. They were obsessed with the law. They loved the law, they professed Christ, but they loved the law more than they loved Christ. He was trying to break their grip on the law by showing how it is inferior to the promises of God and more importantly how it can never justify sinners or saints. 
That's what Paul is doing here. So the purpose of the law is it deals with transgression. It shows, exposes, restrains, even multiplies in a sad sense transgression, but it ultimately points to the one who would deal with transgression, Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the law according to Scripture and according to Paul here. Scripture. Number two, the power of the law, verses 21 through 24, a little bigger chunk here. Paul says this next, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, exclamation point. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He's basically answering his own question here. Is it contrary to the promises of God? Absolutely not. The promise that comes from God promises justification by faith. If the law could do that, then it would be contrary, but it cannot justify. This is what he's saying. And then we look at verse 22. But the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And he says in 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 21a, Paul asks and answers another question, right? Is the law contrary? Is it against the promises of God? And he says, no, certainly not, exclamation point. It is not opposed. It is not against. It is not contradictory to the promises of God. Think of it like this. Where did the law come from? It was communicated by angels, but it came from God, right? The law came from God. Where did the promises come from? From God. God gave the law. God gave the promises. In fact, he gave many of the promises before he ever gave the law. Both came from God. God is a God of order. God is immutable, unchanging. God never does anything that contradicts himself, ever. He never does anything that's contradictory. Both the law and the promises came from God. God is not divided. He is unified. He is immutable, unchanging. He is the God of order. He is not a God of contradiction. He does things that are temporary in nature, and he does things that are lasting and eternal. The promises of God, eternal. The law of God, temporary. When he created the law, God designed it to be complementary to his promises, not contrary. The law is not opposed in any way to the promise that God made to Abraham or to any other promise God made. God does not contradict himself or his word. The law is perfect in its own way. It is not insufficient. It is not, uh, not whole. Uh, it does exactly what God designed it to do. It is perfect because it came from the perfect God. And the promises of God are perfect in their own way. Again, the law and the promises came from the perfect God, so they are perfect. And both serve to accomplish His perfect sovereign will. The law has a particular limited power in which Paul describes in 21b through 24. Okay, the law has some power, but it's a limited type of power. The Judaizers were saying that the law had the power to justify you. If you obeyed it, 
you would be, in fact, justified. And Paul's saying it has power, but it doesn't have that power. It does not have that kind of power. And he responds to their nonsense here. In verse 21b through 22, Paul is, in a sense, saying, if a law, or, and this is exactly what he says, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And then he's saying, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he means, but the law of God does not have the power to give life. It does not have the power to justify. It does not have the power to, to give righteousness. righteousness. Its power is, in fact, limited. This is what he's saying. It has the power only to incarcerate, only to convict, only to incarcerate, only to imprison everything under sin. Why? For the purpose of ultimately magnifying the gospel of Jesus Christ. This paraphrase of mine is, is, is the meaning of what Paul is saying here. The universal imprisoning power of the law unto sin is, is, is super, super bad news. And that's exactly what the law does. Everyone, it puts everyone in a jail cell because it shows that everyone has violated God's will and law. And that's bad news. It's bad news for everybody. Everyone is impacted by, by sin and by the law. All like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 6, 23, these verses we know. All people are incarcerated under the law, under sin. This is a reality. All people stand condemned, John 3, 17. It says Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it through faith in him. Why didn't he come in to condemn it? Because it's already condemned. It's already, everyone has violated God's law. The law has incarcerated everyone, even people who don't even know it or realize it. If you're not in Christ, you're in a jail, and you think you're free. You're at least, at least, at, at, at some level, you're spiritually incarcerated, undoubtedly spiritually incarcerated. But you are a slave to sin. You are in a prison that you cannot bring yourself out of, no matter how much you work at it. Everyone is in this predicament. All people are condemned. But the promise of deliverance through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe is the good news. So you have to have the, the bad news before you can have the good news. The bad news is, is you're a spiritually dead sinner incarcerated. The good news is Christ is a liberator. Christ can set you free from that. He can break the bonds, break the shackles, tear the jail door off. You have a really imbalanced type of preaching in the church today where, where all anyone preaches about is the love of God and, and the grace of God and all these things, and they don't mention sin. How is the gospel good news if we don't first understand the bad news? The law reveals the bad news. You are a wicked, degenerate sinner. You have committed cosmic treason against God. With your drug use, your profanity, your sex out of wedlock, everything about you is offensive to God. That's what the law says. You're a fornicator. You're a porn addict. You're going to hell. That's what the law says. That's the bad news. But the good news is, is that you can be redeemed from all of that 
in Christ, through Christ. If you don't have the bad news, the good news isn't good news, it's just news. And most of the preaching today leaves people saying, well, I'm not sure exactly why I need Jesus. Maybe he'll just improve my life. What people ought to be teaching is that you're a sinner bound for hell. The law says so, and yet you can be redeemed by Christ. You don't have to go to hell. Repent and believe in him. And you can see, you can see how the law and the gospel work together. The law is the bludgeon. The gospel is, is, is the healing component that, that takes away the wound and the sin and restores and, and brings you into relationship, right relationship with God. You can see how they work together. You can't have, if you have just the law, then you only have the bludgeon. If you have just the gospel, then it's not really good news because we don't know why we're getting saved. We don't know what we're being saved from. You can see how they work together. You have to have law. And you have to have gospel. You can't have one without the other. It's like love and marriage. You can't have one without the other. I have no idea where that example came from. Sinatra popped into my mind. Now I'm seeing the vision of him being arrested for adultery. Old blue eyes, you needed the gospel. All people are condemned, and yet the promise of deliverance, which is what God was making to Abraham. There is, I will have a way for Gentiles, non-Jews, to get saved, and it'll be apart from the law. They will be rescued from the law. And this, it is this gospel that I'm, that I'm speaking of that was literally preached to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ actually came. Before Christ was ever born, the law has the power to imprison, to incarcerate. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to remove the bars, break the chains, and set the captives free. Isaiah 61.1, which is a prophetic messianic prophecy about what Christ would do, how he would liberate us from under the, the curse and the bondage of the law and ultimately of sin. And those who believe, who trust, who repent, recognize their sin and repent, turn from that life, turn to Christ for salvation. Those who believe in him, they are freed indeed. What do you think that Jesus said when he said the truth, it will free you and you will be free indeed? That's what he's talking about. You won't be under the penalty of the law any longer. You won't be under bondage to sin. You won't be, you won't be uh, Satan's whipping boy or girl anymore. You will be free, literally, liberated. If we, but if we return to the law for justification, we are putting ourselves back under the imprisoning power of the law. We are self-incarcerating. It's like we go and turn ourselves in. Hey, I'm down here to lock myself up. Can you put me in there? That's what happens if you attempt to go back to the law of God for justification. It's perfectly fine to look to the law as a tutor, to look to the law for some guidance. Well, the law helps me understand how I can live for God, but it ends there. It can't justify you no matter how hard you work at it. Only faith justifies. You know, we are, if we go back to the law for justification, we are 
clasping the cuffs over our own wrists. We are stepping into our old cell. Wow, I miss you. I can see where I scribbled Phil Loves Rachel on the wall here. We are shutting that iron door behind us. In verse 23, Paul makes this exact point. Life before faith was jail. It was jail. It was prison. He says we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, his word. But only until the promise was fulfilled, the coming faith. When we were unbelievers, we were under the law, we were imprisoned. But when we first believed, when we first trusted in Christ, when we, we, we put our faith in Him alone, we were liberated and set free. And the promise of Abraham was, in a sense, fulfilled. His offspring, Jesus Christ, shall what? Bless the nations of the earth by calling Gentiles from every tribe and tongue to Himself through faith. Galatians 3, 8 and 9. <coughs> Verse 24, Paul says the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by works of the law? No, by faith. I like the, the NASB's uh, translation or rendering. I think it's a better rendering than the ESV. Sometimes this happens. Sometimes I'm wrong about the ESV. It's a pretty darn good translation. I really like it. But uh, boy, the NASB is super, super strong here. It renders verse 24 like this. It says, Therefore, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we would be justified by faith. That's a much stronger rendering. That's what Paul is saying. This is a, a reiteration of the purpose and power of the law. It is nothing more than a guardian, or as the King James Version puts it, a tutor to bring us to Christ so that we could be justified by faith. That is the purpose of the law. And that is a limited purpose. That's all it can do is show you that you're a sinner and you need Christ. That's all it can do. Therefore, it has a, a limited power. Its power is limited to its purpose. It can't justify you. It can only show you that you need to be justified. You understand? It shows you that you're a sinner. It shows you that you need grace. It shows you that you need justification by faith alone in Christ. But it cannot justify you. It doesn't have the power to do that. It has the power to expose, to restrain, to increase sin among sin-loving fallen people. And it has the power to, to tutor and lead its inmates, because that's what they are. They're incarcerated to Christ for justification. That's it. That's the limited power that it has. And I would say that uh, it can continue to serve as a tutor in the lives of God's people because it shows us how to please God, how to live for God in a sense. But it goes no further than that, not for Christians. It's not the source of our justification. Christ is, faith is. Does not have the power once more to justify sinners or saints. It can only show you what you are and what you need. It can do no more. That's Paul's point. Yeah, it has power, but it's limited. It can only do that. Thirdly, the perfection of the law. Verse 25 and 29, of course, the Judaizers thought that, yeah, the law has a perfect ability to justify you. It has zero ability to justify you. 
He says this, it's 25 through 29, the rest of the text, but Paul says, but now that faith has come, listen to this, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law is the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Verses 25 through 27, Paul announces the perfection of the law. In other words, he announces the completion of the law at the coming of faith. That's when it's done in the life of the believer. When faith comes to sinners, according to the promise God made to Abraham, the guardianship of the law ends and it is replaced by adoption. It's, it's almost like living in a, a home where you're not the adopted child, but they're caring for you. And then when the adoption parents come along and adopt you, now you belong to that family. That's what it's like. It's like foster care under the law versus adoption in Christ. That's the difference. That's a great way to look at it. That just came to me. Thank you, Spirit. At that point when that person believes they're adopted, right? They're adopted into the family of God. They become sons, as uh, Paul says here, and I would say, or daughters of God through what? Works of the law? No, no level of obedience to the law can bring adoption. Only faith. It is through faith. The law completes its main task of, of pointing sinners to Christ when sinners are baptized into Christ through faith and they put on his righteousness. No, this is not physical baptism. It is the baptism of belief. That's when you are immersed in Christ, when you believe. At that moment, adoption happens, righteousness happens, the law is complete. It has done its job. It said, you're a terrible sinner, you need Christ, oh, you're in Christ, I'm out. It does a mic drop, I'm out of here. That's what Paul is teaching. The law was never intended to be anything more than a temporary means of showing men their sin and leading them to the only Savior, Jesus Christ. The Judaizers, however, refused to relinquish the ceremonial law even after making a profession of faith and belief in Christ. To them, trust in Christ was merely added to works of the law. Well, how are we saved? How are we justified? By believing in Christ and by doing as much as we can. That was their theology. And because they held on to the bondage of the law, because that's what it is, they could not receive the freedom of faith. Because they insisted on remaining under the guardian, under the law, they never advanced to the care of the loving Savior. In verses 28 to 29, Paul focused on the existing well-defined distinctions of his society that drew sharp lines and set up high walls of separation between people. And this part of the text seems to be a bit out of place, but it's not because he's trying to make a point here. The essence of those distinctions was the idea that, that some people, namely Jews, were better than, more valuable than, and more significant than others. 
Paul is saying the gospel of Jesus Christ, right here he's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ destroys all such proud thinking. It decimates it. The person uh, who becomes one with Christ through faith also becomes one with every other true believer. There are no distinctions among those who belong to Christ. There is to be no racial, social, or sexual discrimination. Why? For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, through what? Works of the law? Absolutely not, through faith. Through faith. You need to understand something because this is a, a huge subject today. You know, you hear Christians say things like, well, you know, I have, I have black friends and I have, I have um, Asian friends. And, and, you know, what I don't see is I don't see color. I just see the people. Okay, when you say that, you are acting in ignorance because God created colors. You're not acting right when you say that, well, when I'm with my Hispanic friends, I don't notice that they're brown. That they don't have to sit in the sun all day to get tan like me. You're not supposed to avoid the colors of people. God created brown people and black people and, and white people and some super white people who can't go in the sunlight, some freckly people, some yellow people, some orange people, spray tanners. He's created all sorts of different people. And we are to celebrate that diversity. We are to celebrate the diversity. We are to celebrate the creativity of God. So Paul is not saying that, look, look, when people come into the church, don't pay attention to the fact that that guy over there is black because there aren't any black people in the, in, in, in the spiritual kingdom of God. We're all the same color. That's not at all what he's saying. It's, it's ridiculous, to, it's ridiculous to, to avoid that. We celebrate diversity because God is a creative God. And there's a beauty in every ethnicity. All of them, everyone is an image bearer. And so, so when we say, well, black lives matter, we are essentially saying that no other lives matter, and that's wrong. All lives matter because all people are image bearers. And God is diverse in his creativity, and he has created all sorts, a variety of people, even smart and dumb. We rejoice in their dumbness. I don't, but I'm learning to. We're not supposed to say, well, I just don't see the color. We celebrate the colors. We celebrate diversity. And, and when it comes to the church, we don't want to think of people as, well, there's a black church, and there's a white church, and there's Hispanic churches. That's ridiculous. There's one church and it's every tribe and tongue, black, white, brown, red, spray tan orange, Trump orange. So he's not, he's not saying, hey, just don't pay attention to the women in the church because there aren't any actual women in the church because there's no, there's no female. There are women in the church. 
But because we're women in the church, that doesn't make us better than the men or men better than the women or black better than white or white better than black or brown better than yellow. Or That's what he's saying. You're all the same in Christ in a sense. Don't think color. Think brother in Christ. Think sister in Christ. That's how you're to think. And why is he making this argument at the end of this phenomenal passage? Because those Judaizers thought they were better than everyone else. Why? Firstly, because they're Jewish. And I'm sorry, I'm not picking on Jewish people, but it's a very proud race. And that has gotten them in so much trouble, it's not even funny. 70 years of exile. Just name the predicament, and it's because of that pride. And these guys, and not all Jews are like this, but these guys were Jewish, so they had that nationalistic pride. And then they had Christ, so they had that spiritual pride, which makes no sense. And then they had the law, which they were trying to obey as hard as they could. So they had pride because of that. They thought they were superior to everyone. And Paul has, Paul has come and kicked the ladder out from under him. Come down from your high horse. Because God doesn't see you that way in the church. You're all brothers or sisters, or you're not brothers and sisters. That's his argument here. And I think really what he's trying to do is guard against the pride that comes from trying to obey the law. If you set your life and, 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 uh, on the law of God and, and you're just determined to, to live all of that out and, and you believe that you're going to be a better person and more acceptable to God and, and you do fairly well at it on some days, it just bolsters pride. But ultimately, because it's so vast and we cannot obey it all, it, it goes from pride to despair. We Christians have nothing to be proud of. Our only boast is Christ. And, 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 and you know what? I don't know if there's any Jewish converts in here, but we can have pride in other ways, can we not? I mean, some of us Reformed guys can get pretty puffed up. There is no Presbyterian, there is no Reformed, there is no Lutheran, there is... No, you're all one in Christ. You get it? That's what Paul is saying. You know, the, the Judaizers last thought, they thought they were superior to, to other Christians because they were following the law and because they were Jewish and these sorts of things. They, they thought they were superior but their adherence to the law for justification made them inferior. It made them inferior to other Christians. Being under the law and under its guardianship is no 4th of July parade. That is an endless struggle that you will never, ever, ever have victory in if you set your sights on the law and say, my life goal is to earn my way through obeying these things. That is no parade. That is a horrific life of struggle and incarceration. You may as well go up to Pelican Bay. Actually, I think they closed that down. Find another one and turn yourself in. Because there is freedom in Christ through faith. Freedom. That's the freedom. That's the freedom. Amen? Faith in Christ brings true freedom. The law brings shackles and incarceration. That is Paul's message here in Galatians 3, 19 to 29. That is his message.